everyone. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday. You've been watching special CNN coverage of the indictment of former U.S. President Donald Trump on seven federal charges tied to classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. CNN will continue to follow this developing story during this show and throughout the coming hours. In the meantime, much more coming up this hour, too, including a conversation with the Spanish Vice President, Nadia Calvino, We'll discuss the government's decision to call snap elections, what it means for economic policy in particular this year, and why she says voters should trust them for another term. Spain also managing to outperform the eurozone both in terms of growth and in terms of tackling inflation. The question is, of course, what next? For now, though, we begin with the latest developments in Ukraine. And Ukraine has launched attacks on Russian forces in the south of the country, with officials in Russian-held territory describing fierce fighting, quote, in the Zaporizhia region. All this comes as floodwaters in Kherson start to recede following the collapse of a crucial dam on Tuesday, although President Zelensky says Russian forces are still shelling evacuation points. Let's get straight to Sam Kiley, who's in central Ukraine for us now. Sam, good to have you with us. I think this week has firmly established that we've moved into a more intense phase now in the fighting after months of effective stalemate. What's your read on what we're hearing both from the Ukrainians and the Russians at this moment? Well, in a weird way, there's a, a degree of agreement, actually, uh, Julia, over what's happening on that front line between Zaporizhia and the city of Donetsk. It essentially runs uh, east-west in the most uh, vague terms. That's been a quiet front, but a front that the Russians have been reinforcing in some depth for many, many months because it is the main route uh, south, potentially, for the Ukrainians to try to punch through to Crimea. Now, the Ukrainians, uh, and we've spoken to officers on that front line, are saying that they are conducting reconnaissance uh, in force or by force. Uh, that means that the relatively low numbers of personnel are attacking locations along that front uh, to try to probe for weaknesses, to look for chinks in the Russian armour, effectively. Now, the Russians describe this in more dramatic terms, saying it's a very substantial attack. I don't think it is, but it isn't, it isn't part of some much-vaunted massive counter-offensive, and we may never see a mass movement of troops as part of that counter-offensive, but this definitely is part, certainly, of the shaping operations that are going on in the south. And at the same time, Julia, up around the city of Bakhmut, that place described again by both sides as the meat grinder because it's such a vicious location or a location of such vicious fighting, the Ukrainians are now claiming that they've had significant success to the south uh, punching through a corridor of land, they say about uh, three kilometres or more, that's about two miles deep into territory that they had lost in the past, uh, over the last six months or so, to uh, Russian advances. All of this adding up, if you add in the raids that uh, the Ukrainian-backed Russian forces have been conducting into Russian territory, adding up to an increasing level of energy and violence coming from the Ukrainian side, as I think we could probably say this counteroffensive begins to pick up pace, possibly is the best way to describe it. Julia. Always great to have your context. Sam Kali there in Kiev for us. Uh, in central Ukraine, my apologies.
Now, the war in Ukraine also at the forefront of discussions at the White House Thursday between President Biden and visiting British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The president thanking the prime minister for the UK's partnership in the war and hailing the relationship between the two nations. Shortly after that, CNN's Caitlin Collins spoke exclusively to Prime Minister Sunak about the situation in Ukraine and his view, too, on engaging with China. I think the most important thing for us to do more generally is to ensure that Ukraine is successful. Because, you know, the message. Because you think it has implications. Well, I think more generally, I think, you know, when autocrats and dictators like President Putin are disrupting the global order and conducting illegal and unprovoked invasions of other countries uh, and violating their territorial integrity, uh, I I think it's right that we stand up to that. And whoever it is uh, needs to see that when you behave like that, that you're going to be met with a pretty strong response. And I think that's why when I say, you know, why is it important for the US and all of us to support what's going on in Ukraine, it's because we're defending the rules that we spent a long time building over the past half century, and we need to send a strong signal of deterrent to aggressors everywhere that that kind of aggression is not going to go unchecked. Do you want to meet with either of them, President Putin or President Xi? No, look, I, you know, in general, in, in engagement is is a good thing. And what I would say is, with, with regard to China in particular, this is not about decoupling, it's about de-risking. You know, there are many topics on which, you know, it's right to engage with China, whether it's global public health, macroeconomic stability, climate change. You know, these are big global issues that aren't going to get resolved without China um, engaging with those discussions and being part of the solution. So whilst I think it's absolutely right to recognise the challenge that it poses, take the steps necessary to protect ourselves, work with allies to do that, you know, where it makes sense to engage on these global issues uh, with China, where obviously they do play an important role, I think that that is entirely right and reasonable too. And against the backdrop of the fighting in Ukraine, a massive show of force from NATO. It's preparing for its biggest ever air drill over Europe with 250 warplanes simulating NATO's response to an attack on Europe. Nick Robertson joins us now from Yagul in Germany. Nick, good to have you with us. We're talking around 10,000 participants, I believe. This is going to be one heck of a show of force, perhaps a strong message too. It's certainly a strong message. Uh, the commander of the forces here, though, the German uh, commander of the whole NATO operation, says that it's not a message for President Putin per se. But, I mean, look at the F-16s lined up behind me, and I'm looking at a bigger line of them in the opposite direction here. It's a massive effort, and he was talking about that earlier today when he was briefing the press that air operation itself gets underway on Monday, runs the 23rd of June, and, as you say, the biggest ever in NATO's history in terms of sort of air exercises like this, 25 different NATO involved. But he said, look at it this way. You know, normally, you know, under sort of normal circumstances for militaries, the United States can move tanks from the United States to Europe, other heavy armored equipment. It takes weeks, maybe months even. He said he's been able to scramble here over the past week 190 fighter jets, part of that 250 number you were talking about there, uh, to take part in this air exercise. So it is significant in that it shows how quickly you can get a big 
military force that is an effective deterrence to a red line NATO, the border of NATO territory, not far from here, um, bordering with Russia, not far from the war in Ukraine. But the message, though, he says, is more internal for um, NATO's own consumption, for its own public, to show that they can act quickly, that they can work together fast, that they can provide this credible deterrence. And that credibility comes with working together. And I was speaking to a young F-16 fighter pilot based in Colorado who was telling me, look, I've never done one of these big air operations before, and here I am just a couple of days ago flying next to a Eurofighter. He said, I never would have had that before. That's what this is about for NATO terms, politically, diplomatically, for sure. There's another message. Diplomats will say that. The military commanders here, it's all about training. It's all about interoperability. Nick, great to have you with us. And uh, yes, certainly a scene behind you to appreciate. Nick Robertson there in Hagul, Germany. Thank you. And the French president has been visiting the victims of a stabbing which took place in a children's playground. Four toddlers and two adults were attacked on Thursday in the town of Annecy. Authorities say this Syrian asylum seeker is accused of carrying out the assault. He was seen entering a playground with a knife and going after the children in their strollers. More first move to come after this. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move and a clearing the air edition of the program this Friday. I think everyone here in New York City literally breathing a little bit easier as smoke from the Canadian wildfires moves out of the area, though the wildfire threat Far from over yet, with smoke from the fires now reaching as far away as Norway. Masks on there, please, to help protect yourselves. And from wildfires to the S&P 500 on fire, U.S. stocks mixed in early trade today. But investors celebrating an important milestone with the Wall Street benchmark closing Thursday session in fresh bull market territory. So that's up 20% from its most recent lows. The S&P now up almost 12% so far this year. Now, recapping one of our top stories today, CNN has obtained a transcript of an audio recording where former President Donald Trump admits having national security documents that he had not declassified and seems to have wished he had. According to the transcript, in a private meeting back in 2021, he said, quote, as president, I could have declassified, but now I can't. And this goes against what he'd been saying publicly. You still have any classified documents in your possession? Are you ready? 
Do you? No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. When you send it, it's declassified. We, I declassified everything. So the point here is this could be crucial evidence in an investigation that marks the first time a former U.S. president has faced federal charges. He's just been indicted on seven counts in the classified documents probe. And Paula Reid joins us now. Paula, this is your reporting. Uh, the message here, I think, for my viewers to understand is that it seems that the president willfully retained these classified documents and, and knew he shouldn't have done. Absolutely not. Last week, we broke the bombshell report that prosecutors have an audio recording of the former president not only claiming to have classified information, but also acknowledging the limits of his ability to declassify it. And this undercuts the public statements from former President Trump, from his allies, and even from his own lawyers. Now, I want to read you some portions uh, of this transcript. Uh, he's talking about General Mark Milley. There had been an article um, that upset the former president. He was talking about Mark Milley. And he says, well, with Milley, let me see. I'll show you an example. And he says that he has a big pile of papers. This just came up. Look, this was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We look at some, this was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Now, I'm sure you're not able to count while I talk, but at least four times he says this was him. He's trying to rebut what Milley allegedly said about the former president's plans for Iran. I'm going to go on. He says, again, he's speaking to a group of people at his Bedminster Golf Club, none of whom have security clearances. He says, all sorts of stuff, pages long. Look, wait a minute, let's see here. I just found, isn't this amazing? This totally wins my case, you know, except it's like highly confidential. Secret. This is secret information. Look, look at this. So I want to pause for a second. Uh, secret and confidential are two levels of classification uh, here in the U.S. He seems a little bit confused about which one it is, but he's also appearing to want to show this to the other people in the room. We know in the room were two people working on an autobiography of his former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and then two of his aides. And he knew he was being recorded because he was in the habit of having his aides record conversations with journalists. But perhaps the most damning quote is that he asks, can we declassify this? And then he answers himself saying, as president, I could have declassified, but now I can't, which of course undercuts his public defense, which is that he was able to declassify all of this with his mind. An incredibly damning piece of evidence in the hands of prosecutors. It's unclear, though, uh, whether this will be included or quoted in the indictment. Paula, there's all sorts of questions being asked and questions that will continue to be asked. One that I've seen pop up quite frequently on social media, and I think that's from Trump supporters and some mm -hmm. Republicans yeah. who are saying, look, um, there's double standards at play here. President Biden was also found with documents. Um, what's the difference here and where's that yeah. investigation if you're deciding to, to sure. indict President Trump? Can you explain the difference? Yeah, look, I've reported probably more closely than anyone on the Biden classified document investigation, uh, much to the chagrin of our White House. But these are similar in that they are both special counsel investigations into the possible mishandling of classified documents. They're full-blown criminal probes. 
but there are clear differences. Let's start with just the volume of material. Um, For the President Biden case, there's uh, dozens of documents found in boxes, no evidence that he knew they were there. They appear to have been packed away sort of in the chaos of the end of the administration, according to the one witness who has spoken publicly. Now, when it comes to Trump, it's over 100 pages of documents. It was about 18 months um, of investigators, of judges, urging the Trump team to go back and look for more. Um, They handed over 15 boxes uh, early 2022. They handed over more documents. Then the FBI got a search warrant, searched and found more. Then there were subsequent searches where they discovered even more documents. And there were also questions about whether there were efforts to obstruct that investigation. You also have this audio recording where he appears to be acknowledging that he had this and attempting to share it. And they have not been completely cooperative with the Justice Department. Whereas the Biden team, while they have not always done everything exactly how the Justice Department would have preferred it in terms of timing and communication. There's no evidence that they have tried to obstruct the investigation or, again, that the then vice president knew he was taking classified information or that they were aware. Now, look, mishandling, potentially um, misplacing classified information is a serious issue. But in terms of the legal threats in both of these cases, I mean, there is just no comparison. But I will note, each man has a special counsel, an independent individual overseeing this investigation. But to argue that there's a double standard, I mean, that just belies the facts as we know them. Yeah. Well, that's why we ask you, because you're the <laughs> most expert. Thank you for that, Paula Reid there. OK, coming up, Spain at a crossroads, the country gearing up for a snap election that will test the popularity of socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez and his government. We'll speak to Vice President Nadia Calvino about the challenges ahead and what's more next. Welcome back to First Move on what we can perhaps call Madrid's momentum. The Spanish economy defying the odds in Q1, growing over 0.5% quarter over quarter. Compare and contrast that to the Eurozone overall, which we learned this week is technically now in recession. Spain sporting also the lowest inflation rate in the Eurozone as well, thanks in part to government policies to help cushion consumers. Encouraging news, at least on the surface, for the euro area's fourth largest economy. But as in other countries, the impact of things like higher prices, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine have also weighed on sentiment. That discontent now complicating socialist Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez's political path. And he's called snap elections for July 23rd after a poor showing for his party in regional and local elections amid a rise in support for the far right. Plenty to discuss then. And I'm pleased to say we are joined by Spain's vice president and minister for the economy and digitalization, Nadia Calvino. Vice President, fantastic to have you on the show once again. We have lots to discuss, as always. Um, Let's start with the decision to call snap elections and bring them forward by several months. Um, It's clearly, I think, an effort to draw a line under some of the political uncertainty. Is it in the best interests of the Spanish economy, the Spanish people? I know you still have a lot of work you want to do. Well, absolutely. But I think it is a it was a decision based on responsibility and thinking about the interest of the Spanish people, because for the past uh, five years, we have ensured political stability in our country, which I think has contributed to the strong performance of our economy. And going forward, it wouldn't have made sense to have six months or you know almost seven months 
of a perpetual campaign, uncertainty. Uh, moreover, we're taking over the presidency of the EU Council in July. So I think it is in the interest of Spain to have clarity and to have a stable and strong government going forward. As we mentioned, and I mentioned in the introduction, you have managed to see growth outperform the Eurozone average. You've managed to cushion consumers to the best you can, I think, in terms of um, the inflationary pressure that people have faced. Are those the two strongest selling points, you think, for the government and why people should give you another chance and another chance to run the country Mm. for the administration? Or is there something else? Certainly, I think that the the uh, I mean the Spanish economy is doing better than good. Uh, we had uh, year-on-year uh, growth in the first quarter was 3.8 percent. Inflation rate is already around 3 percent, and the downward trend will continue. We uh, we are, have launched a massive investment and reform program, which is actually kickstarting a structural modernization of the Spanish economy, which is already showing, and the results are also already visible in terms of. Strong employment, better quality improvement, uh, employment, uh, green and digital economies booming, uh, a, a foreign uh, account, a current account uh, surplus that is also pulling the economy up. So all these are positive uh, indicators. The economy is doing very well. And that's why, actually, the opposition is trying to focus the debate on other issues, values uh, and and, uh, fake news and all sorts of arguments, so as not to talk about the economy, because I think that argument would be overwhelmingly supporting uh, that we go on being uh, running the government in Spain, of course. I think on one of the aspects that perhaps they could challenge you in terms of the economy is the cost of supporting growth in terms of government spending and what you've had to do. And many nations, let's be clear, have had to do over the past five years, the pandemic, the, the war in Ukraine. The challenges, higher debt levels um, become more painful as interest rates rise. And that's something that Spain alone can't control. The European Central Bank government uh, does. Um, Vice President, how do you plan to bring the debt levels down, but also try and continue to do the reforms and boost the economy as you've done. Is that something that you recognise needs more work? Well, fiscal responsibility has been one of our top priorities since we took office in 2018. Indeed, debt and deficit to GDP levels uh, went up because of the response to the pandemic so that we could fund tax reductions, short-term work schemes, subsidies to weakest parts of our societies. But as soon as the, we resumed the strong growth path, we have started to go down. And so we reduced the debt to GDP level uh, last year by five percentage points. We have outperformed our targets and our fiscal path has been validated by the European Commission a couple of weeks ago. So we are on track to absorb as fast as possible the extra cost derived from the pandemic. And uh, and all this in a context of strong growth and job creation uh, should, you know, provide us with the confidence when we look to the future. That, um, I think, show of confidence from the EU over future plans is also part of allowing you to hopefully unlock 90 billion euros worth of war chest over the coming sort of three years. So it's the next government that's going to have the majority control over that. I know the European Investment Bank um, manages around a quarter of it. How should that money be used, Vice President? And perhaps more importantly, how should it not be used? 
Well, indeed, that's a very good question because we have set in motion a modernization process in the last uh, two, three years. We front-loaded reforms and investments so that we could have a positive shock. And so we bounced back very strongly from the pandemic. But furthermore, we see the, the signs of this structural modernization and change with the green and digital angle. And now what we need to do is pursue on that path because this is showing to be the right way forward in terms of j growth, job creation, quality job creation and higher pro uh, productivity and potential growth uh, going forward. Uh, we expect that by 2024, potential growth in our country will double the level we had in 2018. We will be around 1.6%. Uh, GDP will be three po percentage points higher with this recovery um, uh, reform and investment plan uh, as compared to what would have happened without the plan. So the top priority for the next government which I hope we will lead and I will continue to be leading the economic policy, of course, <laughs> should be to pursue this path because it is proving to be the right approach for our country. I'm going to talk to you with the uh, Minister of Digitization hat on in a moment. But um, I did read that not only are you in New York and welcome um, for, for high level meetings, but you're also here to collect an award, um, the Foreign Policy Association Medal, which I believe is their highest honour. So um, congratulations, Vice President. But this is awarded for um, responsible internationalism and, and educating citizens about um, foreign affairs and understanding, I think, Spain, in your case, is place in the world. For those that criticise, and it is something that I see is perhaps a, a dividing line between um, your party and the opposition. Um, what is the importance of communicating with larger nations, with other EU nations, with the United States, for example? What's the importance to Spanish citizens? Because I do think this is a distinction that needs to be made. That is a very good point, because since 2018, President Sanchez and, and myself and other ministers, I think that we have brought the, the, the voice of Spain to a different level as compared to the past. Uh, Spain is playing an important role, leading important debates within the EU and also having a better relation with larger nations. And, and, you know, recently we had President Sanchez coming to talk to President Biden and they discussed uh, important issues for the present and the future. For example, also AI regulation uh, now with my digital hat. So this shows that Spain is, is now, I think, occupying the place that should correspond to the fourth European economy, uh, which was maybe not the case in the past. And I regret very much, you know, that the uh, opposition parties are actually uh, not taking this very seriously. They do not have a strong uh, representation in international fora. They do not speak other languages. They do not. And they portray these as irrelevant, which, frankly, it isn't. I am very honored to have got this prize. And I think what it signals is that now more, more than ever in this current geopolitical context, we need to work together and find ways to uh, address global common challenges in a constructive manner, reinforcing our multilateral framework and moving away from confrontation and, and uh, tensions which are not contributing to prosperity and peace throughout the world. Yeah, I certainly um, thank you for your uh um, acuity on the English language, because it's certainly better than my Spanish. To your point about trying to reduce conflict, I think the G7 was an interesting moment, and I want to ask you about that. This perhaps dividing line between the United States and, and Europe over the handling of China and the relationship with China. How do you view the importance of the trading relationship, the geopolitical relationship with China um, from the Spanish point of view, whether it's the war in Ukraine or beyond? 
I think generally, I mean, from the Spanish perspective, but also from the European and the mm. world perspective, China is a very important player. It is one of our key trading partners in, in Europe, but also the U.S. and Latin America and throughout the world. It is also a geopolitical player that is instrumental to bring a, a persistent, a long-standing peace in, in Ukraine and throughout the world. So we need to engage constructively with China. Uh, and that, I think, is the smartest uh, way forward if we want to avoid that these dividing lines and these gaps uh, widen, leading to a very negative path for the world economy going forward. And I hope, you know, that all of us are playing uh, this approach and that we bring matters to where they should be, which is the negotiation table to find win-win solutions to the problems which we share. Mm. I'm going to have to um, save my uh, conversation about the Spanish holding of the um, EU presidency and your ambitions for regulating artificial intelligence to next time. Very quickly, because I have about 30 seconds left, I heard a rumour that you were planning to go on and um, head up the European Investment Bank. Um, I know you've got an election to fight in the interim. Um, Vice President, can you, um, can you rule out that option, at least uh, being <laughs> on the table at this moment? And um, do you think you but can you know, I election? never make plans. I think I think I've <laughs> learned. Uh, I am already almost fifty-five years old, so I've learned clearly that life brings you surprises. You cannot make plans, and I am absolutely devoted to my job as a vice president of the government, committed to continuing with President Sanchez, and I really hope we will win the elections and ensure continuity and stability in Spain going forward. Fantastic. We look forward to um, speaking to you again soon. And I'm going to email um, your fantastic press team to find out about what, what face cream you use. And I would be saying that whether you're a woman or a man. Um, <laughs> congratulations on that. <laughs> um, Vice <Okay>. President, <laughs> Minister for the Economy and Digitalization. Someone's going to tell me off of that. Great to chat to you, as always. Thank you. Delighted to talk to you too. Bye bye. Ditto. Thank you. OK, just ahead on First Move, an explosive finale on the show. We'll take you to Hawaii to explain this next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Moves Footballing Friday, the biggest match in European football or soccer. It's just over 24 hours away. Manchester City facing off against Inter Milan in the Champions League final. And Amanda Davis is in Istanbul, where all the action will unfold. Oh, I have fond memories. 2015, the Liverpool supporter in me is getting excited. But enough of that. Can Man City win the treble, Amanda? That is the question. That is the real question, Julia, and I have to say I see it as one of the real privileges of my job, not just being here at these major sporting events, but being at these iconic sporting venues in these hours ahead of the events when you know history is going to be made, all the excitement, the anticipation of the build-up, and this is always build as the biggest club game in European football. But for these two teams in particular, it really is exciting. Inter Milan back in the final for the first time since 2010 when they won it and completed that 
iconic, elusive European treble of trophies. That's winning the Champions League and also your domestic league and cup competitions. Only nine teams have ever done it in history. And that is what Manchester City are hoping to achieve tomorrow. To not only claim the Champions League trophy for the first time ever, the one that they've been in search of since 2008 when the Abu Dhabi owners took over the club, but also for the first time since Pep Guardiola took charge in 2016. They have dominated domestically this season. They've won the Premier League and the FA Cup in style, and they very much are the favourites going into this one. But just a couple of hours ago, I was lucky enough to speak to Steven Gerrard. He was the Liverpool captain here at the Ataturk Stadium in 2005. I know you will remember it well. It's when Liverpool came back from the brink. They were 3-0 down at half-time. They beat AC Milan on an odds-defying, jaw-dropping performance. That was the last time the final was held here in Istanbul at this stadium. Again, it was an English club against an Italian side. But as Steven Gerrard reminded me, Liverpool that year were the underdogs. So do not write into <laughs> Milan off. But the no. atmosphere very much building here. The teams are just arriving at the stadiums actually, Julia, just before I hand back to you. We're about to hear the press conferences from the two managers and a couple of the players and the teams will take to the pitch for their final training session ahead of the big kickoff tomorrow. Do you know, I'm an idiot. I said 2015 because I'm losing track of time. I meant 2005. My father lost his voice that night. He was shouting so hard. I believe those Liverpool players heard him on the pitch and were willed on to victory. Um, Amanda, what an amazing night it's going to be. Have a fantastic couple of days. I know you're going to have fun and we shall see who comes through. Amanda Davis there. Thank you. And finally, to a red hot story to finish this Friday, another one. Take a look at this. You're seeing eruptions from the Kilauea volcano in Hawaii. Now, the good news is that the alert for the area has now been lowered to a watch level from a warning level. I think I would prefer to be running rather than watching. Now, the eruptions are confined, though, to the crater within Kalauea's summit, Caldera. The Hawaiian Volcano Observatory said there was a six-metre rise of new lava on the crater floor. It's now begun to fall, and eruptions, though, are expected to continue. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. And up next, we'll have the latest on the newest indictment of Donald Trump. I'll see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.